Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. But before I bring on my guest, I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine, in which we featured the lithium king, Teague Egan, who is the president and founder of EnergyX. This company is doing amazing things with one of the rarest minerals that we need, lithium. So to learn all about EnergyX and what they're doing, please visit shellmag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. And you know what? There's a lot of other stories in the latest issue of Shell Magazine that talks about energy, geopolitical, talks about energy, business, and so much more. So to read all about Teague as well as other stories that are featured in Shell Magazine, please go to shellmag.com. Again, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest, Liz Bowman, who is the Vice President Communication for American Exploration and Production Council. Uh, But Liz, before I bring you on and introduce you and allow you to tell our listeners uh, more or less where your background has been, I want to talk just real quickly about what the American Exploration and Production Council is about. It's an association that's very important to the United States. You guys basically are focusing on domestic oil, natural gas exploration, and some of your companies are EMPs, exploration and production companies, as well as you guys are dedicated to providing information on safety science, technology advancements. You guys are an all-around great, uh, badass, if you will, um, education and lobbying group located in D.C. that's absolutely necessary for what you guys do. Um, But that being said, who is your more or less your customer base? And then I want to get into you are by far no um, newbie to communications on a large scale. So first, what kind of companies are uh, do you represent at AXPC? So um, AXPC represents the leading onshore producers of oil and natural gas in the United States. And we say that our companies are responsible for the shale revolution, which we, as we all know, provides our country with immense benefits across environmental protection, the economy, as well as reduced prices for energy for American families and businesses. Well, we were really excited when we were in Houston to run into your group. Quite frankly, I, I wasn't Uh, all that familiar with it and the companies that you guys represent. But the Shell Revolution, as you called it, um, Mm -hmm. and we have a publication, Shell Magazine, that focuses on the North American Shell plays that are happening here. And the differences between the different administrations are kind of striking between the Trump administration, the Biden administration, the Obama administration. Um, We've seen great swings with the pendulum, if you will, in regulation, uh, lacks regulation or overregulation, and so it's good to know that there's a group out there that's really focusing on how to educate our elected officials, if you will, on the differences and how important um, delivering this is, uh, you know, delivering oil production to the United States and, of course, our allies abroad. But you're no newbie to uh, energy and the political scene, so give, give me a little background on uh, some of your past employers, too, because you've worked for some pretty big names as well as right now where you are. Oh, thank you. So I joined AXPC about three years ago. And prior to that, 
Um, I had worked in some other oil and gas associations as well as worked on Capitol Hill as the communications director for Senator Ernst. And I was the head of the public affairs department for the US EPA during the Trump administration um, for the first like year and a half there. Perfect. Well, so let's get into uh, what's happening. You know, we are post midterm elections. Uh, The uh, House was uh, gained back by the Republican Party. Uh, but we still have an administration that seems to be very much in tune with uh, uh, green new processes, green new ways of delivering energy to the United States. And, uh, of course, when we look out uh, on a global scene, you, you, I, I believe we can see very easily history in the making if we're paying attention to other countries that have doubled down and tripled down on energy uh, green energy and have kind of walked away from coal and fossil fuels. And as they uh, did that, they, they kind of noticed that they needed to um, uh, return back to these uh, energy sources because uh, these fuels were just not enough. They're, I'm not trying to say, Liz, that they're bad, uh, right. but, but they are just unreliable at this moment and may at some point, you know, be more reliable. But <clears throat> I want to talk about uh, midterms. And, but first, I want to talk about the Biden administration. He recently was talking about the windfall tax on the industry groups. You guys have already had a lot of regulation, a lot of hits uh, mm-hmm. from this administration. Um, but your CEO, Anne, who has been on the cover of Shell Magazine in the past, she's quoted as saying that she would, she believes that likely this uh, windfall tax would backfire and further drive up energy costs for American families and businesses. So can you tell me about, uh, you know, AXP, AXPC's stance on why would the windfall tax be a problem for the industry? And of course, uh, how's that going to be passed on to us, the consumer? Right. So, I mean, the windfall profits tax is not a solution to high gas prices. It wasn't a good idea when um, previous administrations did it in the 80s, and it's definitely not a good idea now. I mean, it's also worth pointing out that calling for a windfall profits tax conflicts with the president also trying to say that his administration is lowering gas prices. I mean, you just cannot have it both ways. Um, So when the president is saying stuff like this, calling for windfall profits, it's really more of a political message that's designed to confuse people and put blame elsewhere. Um, What's worse is that many of the people supporting this policy know this, but they're primarily focused on just trying to win political points. Um, You know, we have to remember that the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service said that um, the windfall profits tax that was implemented during the 80s under President Carter reduced domestic oil production, increased our reliance on foreign oil and raised um, like barely a fifth of the revenue that they were promising. So it's just not a solution really for any anything other than just pointing fingers and trying to target the industry. Well, and you know what's amazing to me is so uh, the Biden administration, specifically President Biden, um, was asking Saudi Arabia, OPEC, to open the spigot, provide more don't cut barrels prior to the midterms. Um, But every chance it seems like the administration has to really help production here in in the shell plays in the United States, Mm -hmm. they typically tend to do the wrong things. This windfall tax is one of them. Uh, they are slow walking permits that um, are, I think there's what, 4,000 permits that are still waiting to be approved. You've got um, all kinds of uh, problems with or lack of uh, federal land leasing. So there's like a lot of things that this administration is doing to put, you know, roadblocks, if you will, 
right. in front of the energy producers here in the Shell Pipe, which is your members. So mm-hmm. when when uh, you guys get together, and I know this is your core mission in, in going out and talking to the American people, but how do you think this is resonating, resonating with the members of Congress and um, – and I want to get in just a little bit and further on into the show about uh, what you feel now with the Republicans taking the House. But that's going to be a little bit later on. So how how much of what's happening do you think our elected officials right now um, understand and are willing to stand up against everything they possibly can in what this administration is doing? I mean, I do think that a lot of people recognize that some of the positions and the policies that have been put in place by this administration are bad for domestic production. I think that it has been, you know, it did play out in the midterms and people care about how much they're paying for gasoline at the pump. They care about how much their heating costs are going into the winter. And I think that it is problematic. I mean, people see that when the president says one thing, but the administration is implementing something totally different, that that's very problematic for our industry and for the American people. And so I think, you know, you can only claim to be wanting to reduce prices so many times before people start to realize that that's not actually the case. Um, So I do think that there's a lot of elected officials, especially in Congress, who have been paying attention to this and who are willing to stand up for the industry and to do what's right and to try to make sure that we are seeing more um, policies in place that will actually, you know, unleash American energy production. Now, your CEO, Ann Bradbury, recently uh, on the cover of Shell Magazine, spoke to Fox Business about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and Biden's policies regarding federal oil leasing. Can you give us an update on that? But first, uh, just because we have people in the admit, you know, people that are listening who have no idea what the Strategic Petroleum uh, Petroleum Reserve is, briefly tell us what that is. And then, of course, what was your CEO, uh, Ann, saying about this to Fox? Right. So the SBR is intended to kind of protect um, the United States from short term or kind of unpredicted disasters, such as in case of a hurricane or a natural disaster or something that needed to be addressed immediately to try to blunt tools associated with, you know, necessary prices. But the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was not meant to be something that was a tool to use to manipulate energy markets. And that's exactly what this president has been doing over the past year. Because gas prices are so high due to their particular policies, the president has been trying to use one of the things at his disposal, which is releasing oil from our strategic reserve to try to kind of blunt those impacts. But anything that he's doing there is very short term. And it does not address prices in the long term. It is not good for our national security. It's not good for our readiness. And it definitely does not affect prices in the long term. Um, So, Liz, that being said, we also um, were talking about the federal oil leasing. Let's Mm -hmm. go into that. Um, I'm going to cut to break, but I want to just kind of explain it first, then we'll get back on it. So back when uh, President Trump was in office, he was a a, a somewhat of a big fan of, um, you know, drilling on federal lands. And the mm-hmm. difference is, is like here in Texas, we don't have a lot of federal land, so it didn't affect us as much. But other parts of the United States, such as Alaska and New yeah. Mexico, where there's a, they're heavily, they, they, a lot of their drilling is occurring on federal lands, it definitely had an impact. And they also are part of who's producing the overall oil and gas natural production here for the United States and our allies. Um, even Biden, I mean, even Obama, excuse me, um, was allowing these um, 
uh, leases to occur and continuing to allow drilling. But the Biden administration has almost completely uh, caused this to come to a halt, at least for the first two years of his presidency. So um, is there anything I'm missing there of explaining? And then also, um, what is this causing by the, this administration doing that? Because I, uh, I want our listeners to understand that everything that's happening in the Biden administration, their policies, they are directly causing higher prices at the pump, higher gas prices. And for the ones who are saying, but we've got to, Kim, we've got to because of climate change and all these things. And, you know, I just say we got to look at it from a balancing approach. Um, and uh, this balancing approach, it needs to be taken into consideration that we also have to look at other countries that are not doing their part. So do we really have a climate change uh, emergency or not? Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get back into that. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Liz Bowman, who is the Vice President Communications for um, uh, AXPC, American Exploration and Production Council. Liz, uh, before the break, I was kind of telling everybody about the importance of federal the, the federal oil leasing and, and being mm-hmm. able to drill on federal lands. But I'd like to get your uh, AXPC's stance on uh, with from your members. Uh, how have they been impacted? What is your association's thought on this on the Biden administration's lack of even implementing them? And it was much different change than when, Ob- when Obama was in office. He was at least doing this. So what is the differences and how important is it to the American people? Right. So energy produced on federal lands and waters plays a critical role in our energy security. Um, it accounts for 12 percent of U.S. natural gas production and nearly a quarter of U.S. oil production which obviously is vital to our country being able to be energy secure and not have to rely on foreign nations for our energy needs. And so, you know, what's been happening with the Biden administration failing to hold lease sales um, is extremely problematic for this country and for producers who want to be able to produce America's vast natural resources to support our energy security, to provide jobs and to lower prices here at home. Um, You know, the federal Mineral Leasing Act actually requires that the administration hold these leasing sales. So I know that there's also been some litigation tied up with this where the um, DOI is not actually holding sales in accordance with the law necessarily. But to your point, I mean, the Obama administration held many of these and now and they were you know, very much supportive of an all of the energy above approach, whereas the Biden administration is not holding these lease sales. But then on the other hand, they're going out there publicly saying, okay, well, we need more production. Why aren't you guys producing? But then they're not letting, they're not holding lease sales and and creating an environment where it's making it very hard to do that. I mean, as you all know, developing a lease takes many years and substantial efforts to determine the underlying geology to decide whether or not it even holds oil and gas. It's already a very lengthy process and it's often delayed by legal hurdles and administrative challenges from environmental groups. Um, throughout every step of the process, and then adding into the fact that the administration isn't even holding lease sales in the first place is extremely problematic. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, at least midterms came out favorable in the sense that there was the ability to stop this runaway train, if you will, of 
uh, anti-oil and gas policies to bring in green, which again, we, we, you know, we know that in the future, there's only an expectation, a factual expectation that the world is going to need more energy, not less. And we're already struggling with to find enough energy. Countries like Europe have now returned to coal and burning uh, wood. Um, and so that's pretty unmodernized considering or industrial considering that they didn't have to, but what that country kind of did wrong was they really doubled and tripled down on green energy policies that aren't quite right yet. It might be in the future, but not right. quite right yet. So what are you hearing uh, now that it's post midterms with the Biden administration, uh, the uh, House, uh, Senate? Um, how are they all going to get along now? Are we expecting, are you guys expecting any great change? I know we're going to see some change, but there's also the problem with the Biden administration and the stroke of the veto pen. So tell me what you're hearing. What do you think is going to happen post midterms? Well, I think now that the Republicans are controlling the House, I mean, as we all know, Republicans are generally more supportive of oil and natural gas production. And so we think there will be more of a focus on um, oil and gas development, on permitting reform and attention to some ESG issues, as well as oversight stuff. Um, we also expect Republicans will also want to look at what the financial services industry is doing with respect to making sure that capital investment is available to our industry. Um, and we think that there'll be some additional oversight from the House with regard to where some of the spending from the um, so-called Inflation Reduction Act is going um, and with regard to our industry. Um, and we also, I think it's notable that the House Republicans Unlock American Resources Energy Agenda um, includes a lot of solutions to address the high gas prices, further energy independence, unlock domestic minerals, and um, improve the permitting process. So we think that that's all very um you know, we're looking at that very optimistically, but at the same time, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate. And as you mentioned, we still have the Biden administration, which has been fairly hostile and targeting toward the industry. So it'll be an interesting two years to kind of see where all this goes. From the administration side, we do expect what Anne has been referring to as a regulatory tsunami. I mean, we're going to see more aggressive regulations mm -hmm. coming out. They the EPA just released their new methane rule that they've been working on. Um, the SEC climate disclosure rule is still going through the process. And so even though they may not have full control of the Congress, we're still expecting a lot of aggressive things coming out of this administration on the regulatory side. Sure. Well, let's try to run it through through the agencies since we're not going to get it through Congress anymore um, until he's out of office or, you know, until we replace this president. And it'll be interesting to see. I, I've kind of heard, I know you might not want to comment on this, but I will comment on it. You know, it's it's. It's good to hear the rumblings of an impeachment if this is the path that we're going to be going on. I'm not saying I want President Biden to be impeached. I don't really have a stance on that. But if, it, if we're going to continue this assault on oil and gas, that might be the necessary next steps because prices need to stabilize and um, uh, we, need, we need to probably take a one step back and slow down a little bit this administration and kind of think things through a little bit more. Uh, methodically and uh, uh, a little bit more graciously, if you will, as far as how it's affecting the American people um, and this disruption that we continue to see. And how do we also help our allies um, provide uh, LNG to them uh, mm -hmm. because of the war that's going on in Ukraine and stuff. So there's many, many things to think about, and I think the administration would be wise to slow down just a little bit. Liz, we're going to take a break. When we return, I want to get on, uh, we just concluded the COP27. I would like for you to give us uh, some information on what the thoughts are coming out of AXPC and how did that go, and uh, we'll continue covering the COPS27 summit 
You're listening to a new All Patch Radio show, and we'll be right back. Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. Hey, when you're in business, you have to make a lot of tough choices. So let's talk about an easy one, your workers' comp coverage. If you're a propane or butane dealer or operator, you need to join the Lone Star Energy Safety Group through Texas Mutual Insurance Company. As a member, you'll automatically get a discount on your premium, plus you can earn double dividends that'll go straight into your pocket. It's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Find out more at TexasMutual.com slash Lone Star Energy. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Liz Bowman, who is the Vice President Communications for AXPC. Um, so, Liz, before the break, um, you know, we, we talked about the Biden administration post-midterms, uh, the strategic pro- petroleum reserves. Uh, you know, we've kind of covered an array of what's happening. So you retreated uh, this from Amana Barca. One of the key takeaways from the COP27 this year is the oil industry and producers of nations have claimed a respected voice in the climate conversation uh, with Egypt as a welcoming host. And before I uh, allow you to elaborate on that, I just want for our listeners to know that um, if they have not heard what the COP stood for, I want to make sure that everybody's aware of it. It was covered pretty heavily in the news, but basically it is the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference uh, that uh, the media was all over. From AXP standpoint, what are you guys um, thinking about the conference? How did it go? I know there was a lot that came out of that conference pertaining mm-hmm. to climate change. Right. So I think I'll just, you know, since you mentioned my retweet, I'll speak kind of from my perspective as opposed to the organizations, if that's okay. And I think, sure. you know, the reason I thought that that was a really interesting take is because we agree that one of the take key takeaways over the past year is really that organizations and countries around the world are recognizing that you cannot talk about climate without oil and gas producers at the table. Um, Oil and gas is going to be vital to our energy mix for decades to come. We are, the world is only going to need more energy and we need it affordable, we need it reliable, and we think that it should come here from the United States. And so I think that 
as leaders around the world are starting to include producers in those discussions more and more, we think that that's absolutely vital. And, you know, the only difference here is that here in the United States, we wish that the Biden administration would include American producers at the table. Um, I was at a conference last week where um, Harold Hamm spoke and he said something, you know, if the, if the president called us to be a local call. And I thought that that was a really kind of um, key comment there because it is important. And, you know, oil and gas produced in the United States, it helps our economy. It helps lower our prices. We produce this under some of the cleanest and the safest and the most stringent regulations in the world. And so if you really want to address climate change, you need to do it with American producers at the table. You know, that just makes sense. I mean, let's think about this as we, you know, so do we really believe that other countries who have no EPA standards, no air quality standards, no railroad commissions or uh, commissioners to look and see regulations, uh, clean water and air, um, just all these different regulatory bodies that just tend to have to over, you know, they're, they're overseeing the whole energy mm -hmm. policy from start to finish, up, mid, down, midstream. How in the world do, did we get to a place where we are not taking our oil and gas production companies and sitting them at the head of the table, or at, at least at the table, with the head of the table, to get their input? Instead, uh, we are now uh, somewhere in a place where we believe that other countries can provide the world's energy needs, and they have none of this oversight and none of this um, type of oversight uh, regulatory agencies and yet we are talking about climate change and how important it is and so this climate change summit if you will COPS 27 um, there were a lot of things that came out of uh, this summit as well and I'm glad that that's one of them I want to cover though that there's now a new fund that will be placed um, the summit ended in an agreement to establish a fund to help poor countries which is good because if you've ever read uh, Alex Epstein's book the, the moral case for, for fossil fuels, if you haven't, you should, because it really, he does go into the point that um, who are we as a country or even as human beings to say that third world countries, countries that are less, uh, have less than us, don't have access to energy the way we do. They're going to have less, meaning that they're going, that, you know, that their life expectancies might be cut in half and their children may not uh, make it through birth because they don't have access to things like incubators and um, uh, clean water and immunization. And so this is a problem. It's a global problem, but it's also a moral problem. So when we get back from break, Liz, I want to talk about uh, the agreements that came out of COP. You're listening to In New All Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side -side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three- and six-person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha source side-by-side -side owner study. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 
210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Liz Bowman, who is the Vice President of Communications for AXPC, which is American Exploration and Petroleum Council, an educational lobbying group located in Washington, D.C. Liz, um, we just finished up with COPS 27. Uh, This is uh, a a group that met. And one of the agreements on climate change, one of the uh, agreements that came out was to establish a fund to help poor countries um, cope with climate disasters made worse by greenhouse gases from wealthier nations. But the flip side of that is what I said prior to the break, which is they are also these uh, poorer countries being limited on what kind of energy they can implement. Um, And if you don't have good old oil and gas uh, and maybe you have unreliables, you know, how well are they going to do in the energy mix with, uh, I mean, it's statistically a fact. These countries don't have access to do not have access to energy the way we do. Uh, They don't have access, uh, not all these countries have access to clean water, uh, immunization for their children. Uh, Their life expectancy in these countries are are shortened as well as their children don't uh, live, uh, a lot of them out of childbirth. Um, And so this fund to help these countries with climate disaster made worse by greenhouse gases from wealthy nations is kind of it, it's starting, startling to me that that's what it's saying uh, that they signed as opposed to helping these countries get access to abundant, clean energy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, the United States leads the world in reducing emissions, and I think that that's an important point and that we should not be apologizing on the global stage for our success and our leadership on the economy or you know, with regard to the environment. I mean, it is important that we share our technologies with these countries and we help them by using fossil fuels to help lift people around the world out of poverty, Um, making sure that people have access to affordable and reliable electricity is vital. Um, I think working with other countries to ensure that they have access to our fossil fuels and which are produced under the cleanest and safest standards in the world is more important than providing them with billions of dollars of taxpayer money um, for an international fund, which will not necessarily have an effect on the environment. Exactly. I mean, it it is, let's invest in what we know works, providing Mm -hmm. them access to clean, reliable uh, energy, which is natural gas, as opposed to unreliables. And this will prevent the climate change uh, disasters, if you will, versus let's just throw good money after bad um, in rebuilding when, you know, a climate disaster occurs. Um, It's just, wow. Um, (laughs) I know that uh, I looked at the numbers. I think the United States is scheduled to pull out like about $1 billion in this fund to help uh, establish uh, poor countries for climate disaster. I would have liked to have seen $1 billion go to helping build infrastructure that's lasting mm-hmm. and lowering emissions and state-of-the-art to provide these countries with good, reliable energy so their people live longer and they're lifted out of poverty, not kept right. in poverty. Because we also know that's a stat too, right? Like that's a fact. <laughs> if you have that, you actually take them out of poverty instead of leaving them in poverty. Um so how um, do you think this affects the American oil and gas industry? Who's going to pay for this $1 billion that we've just ponied up uh, to help these countries? 
Well, I mean, I think anytime that we're sending money, it's taxpayer money. It's affecting every taxpayer. It's not just going to affect one industry. I mean, we're taking American taxpayer dollars and putting them into an international fund um, that we don't know will necessarily do anything. What we do know is that the innovation of our industry is what has led to the United States becoming the world leader in reducing emissions. Right. And I think that that is what we should be doing is sharing our leadership, sharing our innovation, working with other countries and making sure that they can build their own um, infrastructure in place so that they can receive American energy, especially US LNG, making sure that they have the infrastructure in place on their end to receive our exports so that that can really help them make sure that they have reliable energy that's clean and providing the world um, with this much needed fuel. And um, let's talk about the launching of your new energy education initiative focusing mm -hmm. on focusing on new members of Congress. And Liz, I have to tell you, this makes me very, very happy because um, <laughs> the elected officials that push policies, make policies, should have better information. So tell us, what is this, uh, your new strategic initiative? Right, so we are focusing on a new energy education initiative, um, which is focused on new members of Congress, but as well as the existing members and in committees of jurisdiction to just kind of provide them with some information that outlines really the historical context of the shale um, success story, talking about how we brought our country with prosperity, how we brought them with economic growth, how it is our industry, the American oil and gas industry that helped lead the, our country out of the last recession um, in 2008 and 2009 due to the shale revolution. And so we're talking about all the success that our industry has brought to the United States and the world. And we're looking at some unique ways of doing that. We have a new, new video that we're going to be sharing next week. Um, we're going to be doing some educational efforts and briefings on the Hill with new members of Congress. And we really hope that everyone who, um, you know, visits our website or pays attention to our social media posts will take a moment to just kind of watch that video and really kind of learn some of the success that our industry has provided to the country and the world. Very good. And last question, you guys have also, you uh, this past year, you've been focusing on protecting U.S. energy exports. Um, the Biden administration has has you know said here and there that they were talking about putting a ban back in place, the 40-year uh, exporting ban, which of course I think was, you know, just more talk and hot air. But um, regarding this and protecting it, it's so vital. Um, explain to us what you're doing, because I don't know if a lot of people really understand that our allies that need LNG, the Euro Europe, Europe that is basically without energy, you know, they need somebody to be protecting our U.S. energy exports, specifically for this type of war that's happening between Ukraine and Russia. What are y'all's thoughts on that? What do you, what, well, what do you as American at? energy production increased, so did our ability to export our energy. And so, um, you know, the United States had banned crude oil exports until 2015. But once that ban was lifted, um, it has helped grow in the United States economy and helped Americans save billions of dollars at the pump. And so and then, you know, once we started exporting our energy to our allies, U.S. crude exports have increased by a factor of six and natural gas exports have more than tripled. So these energy exports support American jobs. They generate tax revenue for our schools and first responders, and they improve our United States trade balance. Um, you know, on the crude side, we did a study earlier this year that found that enabling open markets uh, for oil and natural gas both increase production, um, it reduced global oil prices, but and it, um, added $161 billion to U.S. GDP 
and increased jobs by nearly 50,000 in the United States. Um, on the U.S. LNG side, I mean, this is something that's obviously becoming more and more important as last year the United States became the world leader in LNG exports. Um, so, you know, we have been really focused on trying to find ways to support that leadership and grow it moving forward. Um, AXBC released an LNG policy agenda where we're recommending a series of policies that can help our country continue that leadership in U.S. LNG exports. Um, there are policies around international finance, permitting reform, and specifically around Section 3 and Section 7 of the Natural Gas Act. Well, Liz, that is all the time that we have for the show. But thank you for coming on and talking to us about what you guys are working on, uh, obviously, in uh, Congress and, of course, how we're going to continue to work with this administration to try to educate them and members of Congress uh, on providing and uh, pushing through better energy policies for the United States. Thank you once again for joining us on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. We're back. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. The most critical fuel heads for a shortage, and it will affect everything we touch. There is no fuel more essential to the global economy than diesel. It powers trucks, buses, ships, and trains. It drives machinery for construction, manufacturing, and farming. And it's also used to heat our homes. Let's not forget about that. And with the high prices of natural gas in place, and in some places, it's also being used to generate power. Now, within the next few months, almost every region on the planet will face the danger of a diesel shortage at a time when supply crunches in every part of the world's energy market are expected to worsen because of inflation and stifling growth. The toll could be enormous, affecting everything from the price of a Thanksgiving turkey to consumer bills for heating their homes this winter. In the U.S. alone, surging diesel costs will remain at $100 billion, and that's scheduled to hit the economy. That's according to Mark Finley, an energy fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute on Public Policy. He states, anything and everything that gets moved through our economy Diesel is there. Moving stuff around is one thing, but people potentially freezing to death is another. And it could get really bad, guys. In the U.S., stockpiles of diesel and heating oil are at the lowest point ever for this time of the year, and that's going back four decades. Northwest Europe is also facing a low inventory shortage and are forecasted to hit a low this month and then tumble even more in March. Shortly after sanctions come into play that will cut the region off from Russia's seaborne supplies, global export markets have gotten so tight that poor countries like Pakistan will be shut out, with suppliers failing to book enough cargo to meet their nation's domestic demand, meaning this could be the biggest diesel crisis we've ever seen. Diesel in the spot market in New York Harbor is a key benchmark, and it is up roughly this year. The price reached $4.90 a gallon in early November, which doubled from just a year ago. And even more telling is the premium 
that diesel is commanding the price. Spread for the fuel are widening both against crude oil, a sign of how tight refining capacity is, and in relation to supplies that are for later delivery, underscoring that traders are desperate to get their hands on the stuff now. In Northwest Europe, diesel futures cost about $40 a barrel more than Brent versus a five-year seasonal norm of just $12. New York diesel futures for December's delivery are trading at about 12 cents higher than those in January. That compares with a premium of less than one cent at this time last year. So what's causing the shortage? There are major constraints globally on our refining capacity. Supplies for crude oil were already fairly tight, but the bottleneck is much more acute when it comes to turning that raw commodity into things like fuels. And one of them happens to be diesel and gasoline, the things that we use every day. One of the problems was the pandemic. After the lockdown destroyed demand and forced refineries to close some of their least profitable plants, then there was another problem, the looming transition away from fossil fuels. That has also dented investments in the sector. Since 2020, the U.S. refining capacity has shrunk by more than 1 million barrels per day. Meanwhile, in Europe, shipping disruptions and worker strikes have also eaten into refinery production. And things could get much more dramatic with the European Union looming, pivoting away from Russian supply. Europe relies more heavily on diesel than any other region in the world. Roughly 500 million barrels a year get delivered by ship, with around half of that typically being loaded by Russia ports. And the U.S. is also scheduled to halt its import from Russia which is a big supplier to the East Coast. Also charting in the background is the market structure known as backwardation, meaning when premiums are high for supplies with prompt deliveries rather than long-term deliveries. Not only has the spread been unusually large, but the backwardation has lasted unusually long too. This backwardation market structure incentivizes supplier to sell now instead of holding on and producing and building inventory for the future. So the question is, does the East Coast here in the United States have enough to supply them for the winter? And I don't think so. In the US, shortages along the East Coast already had suppliers rationing and initiating emergency protocols. And winter hasn't even begun. The Northeast, the most densely populated corner in the United States where temperatures are often below freezing during a bitter winter is also the most reliant on heating oil for keeping their homes warm. And even in the best case scenario, consumers there will be saddled with the highest energy bills in decades this winter. And also, the government has already nearly doubled the estimate of increase, projecting that families who rely on heating oil can expect to pay 45% more than last winter, and that's up from October's estimate of 27%. To be sure, prolonged diesel shortages throughout the United States are probably not going to be that bad because the country, our country, is a net exporter in the fuel, but localized outages and price spikes are likely to become more frequent, especially in the East Coast 
where they lack pipeline infrastructure, which creates huge bottlenecks. Therefore, the region is heavily reliant on the Colonial Pipeline, which is often full. Now we remember the Colonial Pipeline was hacked and taken offline and we saw what happened when they were taken offline and the East Coast suffered once again. They might consider looking at their pipeline problem. A century old shipping law known as the Jones Act is also complicating the movement of diesel fuel and encouraging producers on the Gulf Coast to favor export over supply in the domestic market. Why? They can get a better price. In February, the U.S. sanctions ban goes into effect on Russia's seaboard delivery. Those Russian barrels must somehow be replaced if the region's economy is going to keep running as it is today. How and where will this happen is so far unclear. Winter coal could also make problems worse for Europe. Across the Northwest, inventories will sink to 211.9 million barrels in March, a month after the UN sanctions kick in. This is according to Wood McKenzie, which will be the lowest level in recorded history going back to 2011. And as the sanction deadline rapidly approaches, Europe is still importing a huge amount of diesel from Russia. And it is also pulling a vast quantity from Saudi Arabia, India, and other countries. And as a result, October's waterborne import hit their highest since at least the start of 2016. That's according to Bloomberg. I hope you enjoyed your energy update. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.